Good morning. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. And um, together with the Federalist Society, uh, I, we're hosting uh, today's forum. I want to thank the Federalist Society, uh, Dean Reuter and Julie Nix, who are with us today, uh, for their assistance in organizing this forum. Um, I also want to welcome the, those who are seeing us through C-SPAN and uh, our live streaming audience as well. Uh, we're here to discuss an important new, uh, uh, an important subject, uh, uh, the Permission Society, the title of a new book from Encounter Books by the Goldwater Institute's Tim Sandifer. Um, subtitled, How the uh, Ruling Class Turns Our Freedoms into Privileges, and what we can do about it. This book documents the many ways, especially since the progressive era, that the presumption of liberty, the freedom at the heart of our founding principles and documents, has been extinguished in favor of a presumption for government, with individuals having to obtain permission from government officials before being able to act. Property owners have long experienced this reversal, of course. Uh, today, they often find that before they can make any changes in their property, they have to obtain a range of permits from the local zoning board all the way up to the Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, resulting often in uh, extremely huge expenses and uh, lengthy delays. But it isn't the use of property alone that the Modern Permission Society restricts its speech, Starting, uh, starting and running a business, and so much more, all of which Tim Sandifer covers in this important new book. Our forum today will discuss this issue in some detail, both pro and con. Uh, I'll introduce each of our speakers before he speaks, starting with Tim, who will talk for about 20 to 25 minutes about the book. We'll then have comments from our two other guests for 10 to 15 minutes each, uh, and then uh, a brief comment from Tim, uh, before we uh, open it up to Q&A from you in the audience and then for lunch upstairs in the George M. Yeager Conference Center. Tim Sandifer uh, is Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute in Phoenix, Arizona. As I write in the blurb for this new book, uh, with this, his fourth magnificent book, plus countless articles, speeches, and legal briefs, Tim Sandifer has emerged as one of America's most important up-and-coming political and legal theorists, a graduate of Hillsdale College and the, Claremont, the Chapman uh, University School of Law, Tim served uh, for 15 years as a litigator uh, at the Pacific Legal Foundation before joining Goldwater. At PLF, he won important victories for economic liberty in several uh, states, some of which he'll discuss today. He's the author of four books, uh, Cornerstone of Liberty, Property Rights in 21st Century America, co-authored with his lovely wife, Christina, uh, which came out earlier this year. Uh, the Right to Earn a Living, which came out in 2010, The Conscience of the Constitution in 2014, and now The Permission Society, plus some 45 scholarly articles on subjects ranging from eminent domain and economic liberty to antitrust copyright, slavery in the Civil War, and political issues in Shakespeare, ancient Greece, Greek drama, and Star Trek, uh, with a range of interests. And those uh, accomplishments at such an early age, we're proud to have Tim 
as an adjunct scholar here at Cato. Please welcome Tim Sandifer. Thank you very much. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. And it's kind of hard to see, but I see some old friends out there, including Alan Gura, who's one of the inspirations for this book. Um, what came to mind when, in some conversations that Alan and some other friends and I were having was a passage from James Madison's 1792 essay, Charters. Madison starts out by saying, in Europe, charters of liberty have been granted by power. America has set the example of charters of power granted by liberty. This revolution in the practice of the world may, with an honest praise, be pronounced the most triumphant epoch in its history. And what Madison meant was that unlike the old doc documents of the, of the English Civil War, of the Glorious Revolution, those documents all gave freedoms to the people, or purported to, whereas the American Revolution was founded on the opposite principle, that people are basically free and create the government through the, the, their own agreements, through the constitutions and so forth. Contrast this, for instance. Contrast the opening of the Declaration or the Constitution with the language of the Magna Carta. We celebrated the, the anniversary of Magna Carta last year, the 800th anniversary of Magna Carta. But when you, and you know, it's a great document and all that, sure. But when you actually read the document, it, it's surprising the language that it uses. It says, John, by the grace of God, King of England, to his loyal subjects, greeting. To all free men of our kingdom, we have granted all the liberties written out below to have and to keep for them and their, and their heirs from us and our heirs. So the Magna Carta is very clear. I, the king, am giving you the following freedoms, and it lists out those freedoms. That's the opposite of the principles of the Declaration of the, or the Constitution that start out by saying all men are created equal, all people are basically free. They then create the government by an agreement and give it certain powers, most of which are listed in Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. What the Founding Fathers did was they, they reversed the older conception of freedom, and they did so on the basis of a basic principle enunciated by John Locke. Now, this is important, I think, because we, like, we philosophize a lot about what is freedom. Is a, is a poor, person who is too poor to afford things really free? That sort of argument. But I think those are distractions from what freedom really is, and that is freedom means not having to ask permission. John Locke says, freedom is not, as we are told, a liberty for every man to do as he lists. For who could be free when every other man's humor might domineer over him? But instead, a liberty to dispose and order as he lists his person, actions, possessions, and his whole property within the allowance of those laws under which he is, and therein not to be subject to the arbitrary will of another, but to freely follow his own. Not to have to ask permission from someone before using your property or whatever, subject to the same laws that apply to everyone else. Now, this was a revolutionary idea in the 1770s because the, pri the, the older model of freedom was this Magna Carta principle that we, we tend to call this principle in the law prior restraint. Prior restraint was the old rule when it came to freedom of press. We, that's where we normally hear this term is when we're talking about freedom of press. Prior restraint was the rule that said you had to get the government's permission before you could publish something. And in the 17th century, this was overturned, and it became the pride of British subjects that no prior restraint could be placed on a person before that person published his sentiments or gave a speech or something like that. He might be punished afterwards if he committed slander or threats or something like that, but he couldn't be required to ask permission before uttering his views. 
But the same principle applies across the board. Religion, in particular, is the model that I use in the book. Under the British system, the British, like if you read William Blackstone in his commentaries in the 1760s, Blackstone is very proud that British subjects enjoyed more religious toleration than the people of any other nation. He's very proud of this, and rightly so, because he's right. He says in the commentaries why we even let Catholics own property, which was pretty liberal by the standards of that day, right? But the principle behind the British system was toleration. Once again, the king was tolerating religious differences, giving religious liberty to the, not liberty, but toleration to the people. The founders repudiated this concept. Thomas Paine says, toleration is not the opposite of intoleration, but is the counterfeit of it. Both are despotisms. The one assumes to itself the right of withholding the liberty of conscience and the other of granting it. One is the pope armed with fire and stake. The other is the pope selling or granting indulgences. Jefferson says the same thing in Notes on Virginia when he's talking about his proposal for the, what became the Virginia Statute for Religious Freedom. He says, our rulers can only have such authority over us as we have submitted to them. The rights of conscience we have never submitted. We are answerable for them to God. The legitimate powers of government extend only to such acts as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there is no God or 20 gods. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Probably my favorite Jefferson quote. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg, so it's none of the government's business. Madison, in his old age, James Madison was very proud, and he wrote a little memoir where he, he told this story that when he was young, in his 20s, he served on the committee that drafted the Virginia Declaration of Rights. And the primary figure on the committee was George Mason, the respected elder statesman of Virginia politics. And Mason, in his original draft, wrote that all people would enjoy the total toleration of religion. And Madison, this then basically unknown young upstart, and this, this intern, jumps up and says, no, no, you can't use the word toleration. You must use the word liberty. And he persuaded Mason to replace the word. He was very proud of that. What the founders did here and elsewhere was to embrace the presumption that we are all basically free, not that we are basically unfree until the government gives it to us. And that's reflected in the text of the Constitution, which speaks of securing the blessings of liberty, that says that our rights shall not be abridged, that says no, no law respecting the freedom of speech or whatever shall be passed. The right of the people to do so and so shall not be infringed. And of course, the Ninth Amendment, which makes clear that the list of rights is not exclusive, just because it's not listed in the rights, just because the Constitution doesn't say you have the right to run barefoot through sprinklers on a hot summer day doesn't mean that you don't have that right. That's what the Ninth Amendment says. It says government is not giving you freedom. It is simply listing a few of your freedoms in the Bill of Rights. So how have we come, how have we come to the point where today you basically need to get government's permission for a, a wide variety of the things that you spend your daily life doing? Think of the things that you have to ask government permission to do. You need a permit to build a house, own a gun, get a job, buy things sometimes, run businesses, pay your, your, your employees. Even freedom of speech now often comes with some sort of permit requirement. We have these colleges and, and uh, uh, political conventions setting up free speech zones, which are basically cages where you're allowed to express your opinion inside the cage. As, as the popular saying has it, I always thought America was a free speech zone. 
But this is, it's also a subtle sort of thing. You find it in places where you wouldn't expect it. An example that I use in the book is architectural design review. Architectural design review occurs when an architect come, has planned out maybe a, a, a single building or a, a subdivision, and he goes before the city zoning board, and the city zoning board officials look at it, and they say, well, it complies with all of our safety codes, but I just don't like the way it looks. I would really prefer that it be colonial or neo-colonial instead of whatever other style it's designed in, purely for aesthetic reasons. I hold that architecture is a form of sculpture. It's an artistic expression and therefore should be protected by the First Amendment as a form of free speech in exactly the same way that other kinds of sculptures are protected as free speech. No one can walk through a Frank Lloyd Wright building or uh, a building by Le Corbusier, or I'm from Pasadena, a green and green uh, 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 masterpiece like the, the Blacker House in Pasadena without experiencing the aesthetic feelings that great artists seek to convey. It is a form of free speech. Architectural design review substitutes the government's aesthetic preferences for the architect's own. Unfortunately, so far no architect has been found with the guts to litigate that point. Um, what's happening in these and other areas is that we're replacing the free society with the permission society, a society where you are not free unless the government gives you permission. Now, the model that lawyers use for this that I describe in the book is the difference between the nuisance system and the permit system. The nuisance system is built on the ancient classical legal principle, sic utere something, 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 something. I don't know Latin. And it, what that means is you have the right to use your property as you want so long as you harm no other person, as opposed to the permit system, which says you are not allowed to do this thing unless the government allows you. Now, there are problems with the nuisance system. One of the problems is that it's, it's basically reactive. It allows people to commit harms, and then you can sue them or, or, or get an injunction against them, more or less, after they've committed the harm or right immediately before they're going to commit the harm. The permit system proposes to be proactive. It says, no, no, you have to prove to us that you are qualified, honest, and so forth before you act. The problem is that there are many more problems with the permit system than with the nuisance system. For example, rent seeking, the phenomenon where if the government can hand out benefits to people, it becomes in their best interest to spend their time and money to get the government to do that in their favor. Another one is the knowledge problem, identified by Friedrich Hayek. No individual, no corporation, no government can possibly know all of the information necessary to run an entire economy. The classic example given by Leonard Reed is the pencil. Nobody in the world knows how to, design, how, to, how to build a pencil. Because to build a pencil, you need graphite and wood. To get the wood, you have to have lumber. To get the lumber, you have to have lumberjacks. To get lumberjacks, you have to feed them, which means you have to have farms, which means you have to right? A few steps along this reasoning, and the entire world's economy is spent building a single pencil. But the way it works is by a decentralized process of decision making that avoids this knowledge problem. The permit system causes this knowledge problem. So to take an example, in Kentucky, I litigated a case in Kentucky in defense of, a, of a, an entrepreneur who wanted to start a moving company. And in Kentucky, as in most states, you're not allowed to start a moving company until you first get permission from all of the existing moving companies in the state. Not making this up, this is the law in about half the states and in most major metropolitan areas. It's called a Certificate of Public Convenience and Necessity Law. You have to prove to government bureaucrats that there's a need for a new moving company in Kentucky before they'll give you a permit. And any existing moving company can object and say there's no need for more competition against them. And guess what? 
They often say that, right? So we took, we took this case to court, and in the deposition, I asked, how do, you, how do you bureaucrats decide whether there's a public need, or even worse, a future public need for a moving company some way down the line? And the, the, the bureaucrat answering the question said, there are no objective criteria. Well, there you go. That's another problem with the permit system, is the vagueness of the criteria that usually operate. For instance, in the gun permit area, you can't have a gun unless there's good cause. What does good cause mean? Whatever the bureaucrats say it means. But even deeper than this, I think there's even more fundamental problems with the permit society. One of them is it violates the principle of equality. Who has to ask permission? An inferior has to ask permission of a superior, right? Slaves have to ask permission. Children have to ask permission. Until recently, women had to ask permission to own property, get jobs, sign contracts, and so forth. Right? To, to, be in the, to have to ask permission from someone else typically means flattering or appeasing that person rather than treating them as equal citizens or even as government employees who stand beneath the citizens in that sense. It substitutes political for economic power. The, the permit system this rent-seeking phenomenon creates a class of people who have access to the government decision-makers and can use that power to benefit themselves. The Soviet Union called this the nomenklatura system. There was always a class of people you know, whose cousin served on the board or whose brother was on the committee or who, you know, in exchange for a little something, might be able to get you some time in front of the bureaucrat. That's another problem with the permit system. It allows those in power to demand something in exchange for a permit. In the land use context, we often see this where you apply for a permit to build something, the government comes back and demands property or even cash from you in exchange for a permit. The Supreme Court has said that this is unconstitutional in many cases, but local land use officials continue to do it nevertheless. I did a case in, a San Diego, in the San Diego area several years ago where my client was forced to give up his right to vote in exchange for a building permit. But the most offensive part of the permission system across the board is how it deters innovation. It restricts opportunity simply by existing. Think of this, of an entrepreneur, he doesn't have a lot of capital, comes up with a great new idea, a new innovation, he thinks, wow, you know, this could really help people and they'd be willing to pay for it, I could make a lot of money off this. And then he thinks of all the permits he's gonna have to get, of all the hearings he's gonna have to go through, maybe even special lobbying to get a special law passed to exempt him from an existing bureaucratic regime and so forth, and says to himself, you know, it's just too much trouble. We can never assess that cost because it vaporizes instantly. It never comes into existence. How much might have occurred? How many jobs might he have created? How much wealth might he have created? And how many other innovations would have come about because of his innovation that also vaporize in that instant? As the great poet John Greenleaf Whittier said, of all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, it might have been. We never know what might have been if there wasn't a government apparatus barring innovation unless you can prove to the government that there needs to be a new business of that kind in that area. Now, for a year, I've been a libertarian since I was in high school, and I remember how often I would say something about freedom is good, and the answer would come back, yes, but you also have to have responsibility. And this is often uh, the response that I get when I talk about the problems of the permission system. The permission system is supposed to impose responsibility. The problem is that responsibility can take two different meanings. It can either mean don't hurt people, 
which is secutere something, something, something. That's the nuisance principle. Or it can mean do what we say. That's the permit system. I think the nuisance system is, by and large, the better way to approach social problems. And that means presuming people free unless they're going to harm some other person. Unfortunately, I believe we are sliding more and more into a society that presumes you unfree unless you get the government's permission. And as we move toward the permission society, we're moving away from the principles of freedom upon which our Constitution is based. In 1946, at the Nuremberg trials, Justice Robert Jackson, who was serving as the prosecutor of the Nazi war criminals, was looking for just the right way to describe the freedom that he hoped would rise from the ashes of Europe. And he found those words in the, a poem by Rudyard Kipling. All we have of freedom, all we use or know, this our fathers bought for us long and long ago. Ancient right, unnoticed as the breath we draw, Leave to live by no man's leave underneath the law. Leave to live by no man's leave is the essence of freedom. The more we're required to ask someone for permission, the more the government presumes that we are not free unless the government says we are, the less freedom that we have. And that's, there's no reason for it. It's offensive and unjustified because, in fact, we, we accept the idea that people are basically free through most of their lives. In fact, most of the dangerous things that we do in our lives, driving or eating, we don't have to get the government's permission before we do those things. Why can't we trust our fellow citizens with freedom? And if we can't trust them with freedom, whom can we trust with ours? Thank you. Well. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, once again, we are here to mark the publication of Tim's new book, The Permission Society, which those in the audience uh, can purchase outside, along with Tim's other books. So please uh, feel free to do so, and uh, he'd be glad to sign it for you. While you were talking, Tim, um, my colleague, Ilya Shapiro, sent an email that just breaking news that uh, your circuit, Judge uh, Williams, has uh, struck uh, massive unchecked power of the Consumer Bureau Director. So um, keep talking, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now uh, to offer a um, somewhat different perspective, perhaps. Uh, we're going to hear from uh, an old friend of the Cato Institute. He has spoken here more than once, uh, Professor Alan B. Morrison, uh, who is the Learner Family Associate Dean uh, for public interest and public service uh, at uh, George Washington University School of Law. Uh, for most of his career, uh, Dean Morrison worked uh, for the Public Citizen Litigation Group, which he co-founded with uh, Ralph Nader in 1972 and directed for over 25 years. His work involved law reform litigation uh, in various areas, including open government, uh, opening up the legal profession, suing agencies that failed to comply with the law, enforcing principles of separation of powers, protecting the rights of consumers, and protecting unrepresented class members in class action settlements. He's argued 20 cases in the Supreme Court, including victories in Goldfarb v. Virginia State Bar, holding lawyers subject to the antitrust laws for using minimum fee schedules, Virginia State Board of Pharmacy for Virginia Citizens Consumer Council making commercial speech subject to the First Amendment, 
fortunately, and INS v. Chatta, the very famous case that struck down over 200 federal laws containing the legislative veto as a violation of separation of powers. Uh, Dean Morrison currently teaches civil procedure and constitutional law and previously taught at Harvard, NYU, Stanford, Hawaii, and American University Law Schools. He's a member of the American Academy of Appellate Lawyers and was its president in 1999 to 2000. He's a graduate of Yale University and the Harvard Law School, he served as a commissioned officer in the U.S. Navy, and was assistant U.S. attorney in New York. Please welcome Alan Morrison. Thank you, Roger. Uh, the thesis of this uh, new book is that our society is inverted and that we need permission uh, instead of having the freedom to do what we want to do. Uh, no doubt in my mind that permission is needed for many things in society, but my reading of the book and knowledge of society is that it's got it inverted uh, and that there's nowhere near the ratio that the book's title and the book uh, would suggest in terms of permission versus uh, freedom. Uh, and I, I, as I thought about the few uh, stories in the book, some of which are very interesting and I agree with, uh, I, I remembered that the old saying that uh, the plural of anecdote is not data. Uh, and so uh, I thought I would start by a story of my own uh, about the real permission society. And it occurred when I was a, at the end of my first year in college, I was on a naval ROTC cruise. I love the word cruise, but it's, it's, it's what they called it. Uh, and it was very hot, and I, it was at lunchtime, and I went down below uh, and got an ice cream and brought it up on deck. And a person who outranked me, which was basically everybody, uh, came up to me and said to me, what are you doing with that ice cream? I said, I'm eating it. And he said to me, who told you you could eat that ice cream here? I said, nobody. Uh, and he said, I, I said, nobody told me I couldn't. He said, did anybody tell you you could? And that's when I knew the difference between being in the Navy and being a civilian. As a civilian, I could do anything I wanted unless somebody told me I couldn't. Being in the Navy, I couldn't do anything unless somebody had t told me that I, that I could. So that would be the true permission society uh, that I, I envisioned it. Uh, but I don't find that to be the permission society in, in, in the world at large uh, today. But let me start with a couple of areas of, of agreement, uh, both with respect to licensing and the certificate of necessity. Uh, the first time I ever uh, had a matter with the Cato Institute uh, was back when the Cato Institute was in a small townhouse on First Street Northeast. Uh, and I came over to talk to them about some cases I had involving the unauthorized practice of law. At the time, I was representing a legal secretary who was being prosecuted by the Florida State Bar for typing up divorce papers uh, for people who couldn't afford to have uh, lawyers. And we had some challenges to that and other similar activities. And Cato was very much in line with us then. Um, I had a lot of cases involving the legal profession, as you heard, uh, many of them successful. But unfortunately, in the area of unauthorized practice of law, I have been largely unsuccessful. Um, I had thought to try to bring cases in that area, uh, raising a First Amendment challenge that, after all, uh, Rosemary Furman, my client, was just simply speaking and writing, and that was a First Amendment-protected activity, uh, but always thought that that was not a winning argument, uh, that it was actually conduct that people were, were, were trying to, to regulate. Um, I didn't believe, and I still do not believe, that all licensing of lawyers is a bad idea. Uh, it's just that they've gone much too far in the areas in which only lawyers are allowed uh, to provide uh, the necessary services. Uh, 
Uh, the book talks about other licensing, uh, among them the tour guides uh, have to be licensed. Uh, and, and it's one thing to have them licensed in the sense of, of having a bond or, or, or being able to identify them and find out whether they have any criminal activities. Uh, but here in the District of Columbia, uh, I think it was your office that, or maybe somebody else similar, brought a case involving the tour guides because they had to take an examination uh, of the 100 most important monuments in the city and be able to correctly identify them lest people would be misled. Uh, the case got to the D.C. Circuit, and uh, it, it eventually got settled uh, by the district wisely repealing that, that requirement. Uh, but the tour guide uh, rules uh, still apply in Louisiana and other places. Uh, and it, well, could I envision some harm occurring from, uh, from a misinformed tour guide? I suppose that, that I could. The question is, is it serious enough uh, to do anything uh, about it? Uh, the trouble uh, is how do we deal with a problem like that? And the book pr proposes uh, several tests uh, on page 213 to suggest uh, ways in which the, the licensing matters can be reduced. Um, uh, for example, there has to be a genuine need, clearly endangers the public, uh, a tough analysis before passing. What do we do about the current laws that are already on the books? The trouble with all those is if you ask the legislators or the regulators, they would say they're already complying uh, with them. Um, uh, they don't contend, oh, no, we're not regulating anything frivolous. We're only doing really important things. And the problem is, how do you get a handle on, on that? Uh, my own view is that the First Amendment is not the right way to go. Uh, there have to be better, better ways to, to approach that uh, problem. Uh, I suppose that we could have a situation in which the Federal Trade Commission could come in, given the authority to preempt uh, state and local regulations. I doubt that that would be a popular solution here in this uh, building. Uh, but you have to sometimes decide which is worse, uh, licensing or, or not. And the same is true for the certificate of, of necessity. Uh, I personally encountered something the other day. Uh, we try at, our, at GW to do a lot of pro bono projects uh, for our students. And one of the areas the students are particularly interested in is helping veterans uh, with their problems, uh, including their ability to get proper pensions based on their disability and, and inability to perform any kind of work at all after coming back from uh, war zones. Uh, it turns out that somebody in Congress, and I don't know who it was, has now got requirements in there uh, that if in order to be able to assist a person filing for benefits, you have to be accredited. And that applies whether you are a lawyer or somebody else. Uh, and if you are a lawyer, not only do you have to apply and be accredited, but you have to take three hours of continuing legal education to help a veteran file an application. Uh, and that nobody is allowed to do this unless they are accredited. Uh, I thought that we were supposed to try to help our veterans. Uh, and the danger of somebody not helping them out as opposed to having them have to do it themselves seems to me to be completely misplaced. Uh, but And this is apparently a fairly recent uh, statute because all the veterans organizations now have to get their own persons uh, accredited as, as, as well. Uh, the second area that he talks about in his book that I, that I fully support him in the certificate of necessity. Uh, I confess that I had not heard about these moving company problems uh, before. Um, certificates of necessity that I had heard about involved, for example, the ability of a hospital to open a new place 
in a town when they were seeking Hilburton funds to do so. And in that situation, before the government spent money, they had to decide whether it was necessary to do that. And the same thing is true with buying certain very expensive uh, equipment. But I had not heard about this before. And I applaud the efforts to, to go after those. Um, I'm not sure the First Amendment is the right way to go after it. I'm not sure basic uh, constitutional freedoms or, or substantive due process is the right way. Uh, but surely. Uh, the Commerce Clause uh, ought to, in these interstate moving companies, be a fruitful uh, ground for attack. Uh, I don't know how many of you have heard about the problems that the Tesla automobile company has had in trying to open up uh, new, new markets. Uh, Tesla had an idea that they wanted to sell their cars directly to consumers. A number of states, including Virginia and New Jersey, have laws that say you may not sell cars unless you have a dealership in our state that provides full service and, wa and warranty to them. Uh, strikes me as being a plainly, plain violation of the commer dormant commerce clause, uh, that it plainly interferes with the ability of interstate companies to do business in the state. It does not help consumers at all. Uh, there's nothing wrong with the market for automobiles in this regard that can't be cured uh, by uh, allowing Tesla to come in if it does business and provides proper service, people will know about it. If it doesn't, people will know about it also. Um, Tesla tried to work with some of the states for a while, and now I, I, I saw the other day that they filed a lawsuit on Commerce Clause grounds, uh, challenging these laws as they properly uh, should. Uh, when I saw the title to this book, I thought maybe this was going to be about the FDA and the EPA, but there's surprisingly little uh, in it. Um, uh, and. Uh, I think that uh, that's a recognition uh, that in our permission society that the nuisance theory only works so far, uh, that we need some kinds of protections in some cases. And I don't understand that Tim disagrees. I think the problem is one of line drawing and how we decide and who is going to decide uh, which areas need protection and which of them uh, don't. Uh, uh, and, and the more I thought about it, the, the more I thought that the, that the problem was not in the generality, uh, but in weighing the specifics. Um, take the precautionary principle, which the book talks about. That's a general notion that uh, if we don't know about something new coming on the market, we, uh, and it has a potential for being dangerous, uh, pesticides, for, for example, or new drugs, all of which in order to do their work, must have side effects. And the question is, are they, meaning, are they harmful side effects? And does the drug do what it's intended uh, uh, to do? The precautionary principle says, wait a second. If we're not sure, we should perhaps uh, uh, not allow something to go on the market or put it on with, with, with uh, conditions, uh, including uh, post-marketing surveillance. Uh, and it's not that everybody who, who concerned about this, thinks that we should either take everything off the market or put it on without conditions. There are, there are interim positions. And the question is, are those interim positions sensible? Uh, I really like the quote, and I've used it several times since then, from St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas was, was purported to have, have said, he said, if the captain of the vessel were solely concerned about the vessel's safety, he would never leave port. 
and that's an interesting way of thinking about it. The point you made earlier, Tim, is that we don't know what wouldn't have happened if we don't let people go out uh, to sea. On the other hand, sometimes being in port is not as safe as being out in, in, at anchor uh, or, or out perhaps even at sea uh, if we have a hurricane. Instead of having your vessel smashed against, against the, the dock, sometimes it's better to take a little risk and, and go out uh, uh, to, to sea. Uh, uh, all right. So as I was wondering uh, about this, about the permissionless society, I thought about a recent phenomena, driverless cars. Should they have to get permits in order to be out on the road? Are we willing to allow the law of nuisance uh, to decide whether all of us are going to be uh, subject to having driverless cars? Or should there be some kind of restrictions, permissions, authorizations, checks in advance? And if so, who should decide and what should they, they, they be? Uh, the, uh, uh, how about speed limits? Is that a permission that we all should be granted, or we should be permitted to drive as fast as, 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 as we want? Um, or what do we do about Uber and Airbnb? Uh, should they be regulated at all? And if so, in what regard? Do we worry about the interests of the workers who are subject to uh, the conditions? Or should we say they're, they're all right? We don't have to worry about them. They're different from employees for whom we have to worry about things like minimum wage, which, which you probably would be opposed to in, in any event. Uh, 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 and what do we do about the customers? Uh, there was a piece in the Post a couple of weeks ago about uh, racial uh, discrimination in Airbnb. Uh, if they're completely unregulated, uh, what can we do about, about that as well? Uh, the a book contains some early references and praise for the decision in, in, in Lochner, uh, leaving aside the specifics of how the bakers in that community got together and passed the law that was only applied to working for, for, for bakers. Uh, the bigger question is, is it appropriate for our federal courts to essentially review because they don't like the economic regulation that has been passed by our legislators or our regulators. Uh, my own view is that the harms that come from excessive economic uh, regulation are relatively modest, uh, and that the danger of having the courts step in and review all economic and other regulation uh, for substantive due process violation is a greater harm. Uh, but that's my view, and it may not be that of everybody else in, in the room. It, it, the last point I want to make is I was rather surprised at who the enemy was in this book. Um, the enemy is the ruling class, for which I translate to be uh, elected and appointed uh, officials. Uh, uh, and the question is, uh, are we better off or worse off with having democracy, because that's what we're talking about there, uh, be, be, our, be our guide in, in these uh, areas? Um, it is true, of course, in many cases, we're beset with regulatory and legislative uh, capture. Um, and the book is clear, however, that that doesn't occur in all the situations. Uh, the, the question is how we try uh, to deal with that and how we try to draw uh, better lines. Uh, the book suggests that Litigation may be useful uh, not simply uh, as an opportunity to, to turn back a bad law, uh, but as a means of exposing the silliness behind the laws that, that we have. Uh, that it's a wonderful opportunity uh, when, you, when the government has to answer your complaint, 
they have to put on a live witness who will say under oath uh, why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, and you get many answers that are essentially indefensible. Uh, all this is part of a broader education program. And so whether litigation, which I spent much of my life doing, is actually going to win some cases, that's nice and important. But it also serves a function of reminding society that uh, we all are entitled to rational responses to the questions that we ask. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Alan. We've gone uh, nearly three quarters of an hour before Lochner came up, which is a long time in this auditorium. Um, we're now going to hear finally from uh, Judge Stephen Williams, uh, who was appointed uh, to the United States Court of Appeals in the D.C. Circuit. Uh, in June uh, 1986, and took senior status in um, September 2001. Uh, like Dean Morrison, he's a graduate of Yale College and the Harvard Law School. Uh, he uh, was engaged in private practice from 1962 to 1966, and became an assistant US attorney for the Southern District of New York in 1966. Uh, from 1969 until his appointment to the bench, uh, Judge Williams taught at the University of Colorado School of Law. During this time, he also served as a visiting professor of law at UCLA, University of Chicago Law School, and Southern Methodist University. And he was a consultant to the um, Administrative Conference of the United States and the Federal Trade Commission. He's a noted expert on oil and gas law and is the co-author of Cases on Oil and Gas Law, uh, which appeared in the sixth edition in 1992. His most recent uh, work is entitled Liberal Reform in an Illiberal Regime, 1906 to 1915, The Creation of Private Property in Russia, a book that we featured here at the Cato Institute when it came out and a book that has been described by former acting Prime Minister of Russia, Igor Gaidar, as absolutely splendid. Please welcome the absolutely splendid Judge Stephen Williams. Steve, you want to come up here? Uh, I'd really rather be here. Oh, That's all right. Okay. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Maybe there's one person who's deprived of an opportunity to see me, but he can move. Um, I, I thought the book was a, uh, generally a very good assessment of the pathologies of, of regulation, but I, I don't think it's really consistent with the uh, norms of judicial ethics for me to try to do either the equivalent of what Alan did or a rebuttal of what Alan said. Uh, we're not supposed to uh, speak about, the, about specific policy issues that are likely to come up in front of us, as so many of these potentially could. But I do think that the, uh, what it is useful for me to focus on uh, is the fundamental question of how a permit system actually differs from uh, regulatory systems uh, in which the government acts after the citizen has acted. Um, uh, Tim uses the, the metaphor nuisance systems, but I. I'll just call it non-permit systems, which are, are cover a lot. Um, and at the very end of the book, Tim has a very brief section in which he enumerates what he thinks are distinctive uh, drawbacks 
to a permit system. But I will argue that except for one, a very important one, I hasten to say, uh, except for one, uh, they're ubiquitous across regulatory systems. First, rent-seeking. Uh, that's undoubtedly present in permit systems. It's also present even in the form of after-the-fact regulation known as antitrust law, which I think is the, is the form of regulation probably most, uh, most accepted by uh, adherents of free markets, not, not uniformly accepted, but nonetheless uh, the most uh, accepted. Uh, and as you know, uh, for a long time, not so much under current doctrine, but for a long time, antitrust law was a device by which uh, people could take out their competitors. Ironically, but in any event, it worked that way. So rent-seeking was, was at work even there. Tim identifies the knowledge problem, which to him is a, an implicit claim the government uh, has more or better knowledge than private citizens. First, I would say basically, there's a lot of regulation that really doesn't depend on that at all. Uh, regulation depending upon the proposition, either the transaction costs are too high for an optimal solution to be worked out by normal contract and property rights, uh, or asymmetries of information, the, the drug issue, for example, being a clear case of, of those. Um, in any event, um, it's equally present in non-permit systems. Vagueness, well, yes, uh, both systems are vague. I would argue that the vagueness of a permit system is slightly less dangerous than the vagueness of a non-permit system, in that with a non-permit system, the government crashes down on you after you've committed resources, possibly sends you to jail and so forth because you misunderstood a particular regulation. Fourth, demanding payoffs. Yes, and of course his, his history of the uh, Certificates of Public Convenience and Necessity, which is a wonderful chapter, um, recounts many episodes of that, but they seem to function uh, in non-permit systems. The, the example that comes to my mind most clearly uh, is the situation where the government uh, believes that a bank has committed fraud, starts to investigate, uh, and of course the very fact of the investigation clouds the bank's prospects. An indictment would be fatal, let alone a conviction. Uh, the, the recent Deutsche Bank uh, episode uh, suggests that even, even rumors of an agreement on a settlement can be nearly fatal to a bank. So again, the, uh, the need for payoffs, which, which result from the uh, Department of Justice uh, criminal pursuits, um, uh, is present across the two systems. Now I come to the one that I think is, is his strongest, and I'll, I'll return to it again, what, what he calls the double layer effect of permits. Uh, and he points out that uh, where the citizen proceeds without a permit or in defiance of limits in a permit, uh, he's going to lose even if the denial of the permit or its limitations were illegal. 
So that certainly is a, a, a double effect. Uh, and associated with that is the fact that in the permit system, uh, delay operates against the citizen in favor of the government. The citizen has to wait until the government has finally pulled itself together to act. Uh, I'll, I'll, I want to focus on that some more later. Let me just quickly take the other two uh, objections that he poses, stifling innovation, surely true in the case of after-the-fact regulation. Um, again, antitrust is a good example. Uh, finally, the government as superior, uh, well, yes, uh, these other systems involve the government exercising its coercive power, its monopoly on the use of uh, force to compel citizens to, uh, to stop doing something or to pay a fine for having done it. <clears throat> so I want to come back to the issue of the, essentially the delay coming at the expense of the citizen actor. And I think the, the key problem there uh, is that it, and it means that the uh, adverse effects of the regulatory system uh, tend to be hidden. So com compare a system of regulation of truckers uh, under which you have to get a permit to go into the business, or you can be fined or imprisoned by the government uh, if you enter the business and the government finds that your activities have an adverse effect on the economic prosperity of the truckers, pre-existing truckers with whom you compete. Now, <clears throat> imagine a someone uh, who thinks he'd like to go into trucking, and under the second system, the government, government is going to clomp down on you afterwards. He buys a truck. He starts providing services. Maybe he starts to get pretty good at it or pretty successful. He gets a second truck, a third truck. He has, by this time, quite a few customers, maybe a little reputation. At that point, uh, the pre-existing competitors ask the government agency, hey, you got to move against this guy. He's clearly violating the norm, which is probably true. Uh, and they go after him. I think in that, in that context, their ability to get the result they like is going to be weaker uh, than in the permit system. Because by this time, people know about it. He's got, if he's done even a decent job, and if he hasn't done a decent job, he's probably going to business will die on its own. Um, if, if, he's, if he's done a decent job, people will be upset. There, might, there should be, I would hope, news coverage uh, of the government's attacking this person. And uh, he has a, I would say, a, a far better chance of escaping the regulatory uh, nemesis uh, than he would uh, under the permit system. Alan brought up Uber, um, and I, one of my, I, this is entirely speculative, but uh, Uber, by the time it became controversial, had a lot of customers uh, who were, many of them, really quite, um, you know, they were members of the elite, to put it simply. Uh, and I think that has made it harder. It, it means that the, uh, t 
taxicab companies whose uh, entitlements are jeopardized by Uber uh, are in a much weaker position to oppose it than they would have been before some agency uh, regulating its services at the outset. Now, the, the concept of prior restraint comes from, the, from free speech uh, and consider it there. I think you have the, sa the same situation. Um, if a person can publish first, and, and a premise is gonna be that there is a modicum of free speech in this hypothetical society. If you can publish first, then people, when the government goes after you, people, quite a few people presumably, uh, will know what it is you were saying. And 95% of the time, uh, government going after you on the grounds of what you said is gonna look extraordinarily silly. Whereas if they simply cut it off in a censorship program, nobody essentially would know about it. Um, so that, that now the modicum of free speech is important. In Stalin's Russia, I don't think it would make any difference whether a permit system was used or just the NKVD coming after you. It works exactly the same. Uh, but that's because there was no way in which uh, publications uh, that didn't represent the party line could actually go ahead. Um, Basically, the proposition is one of strangling things in their cradle. And, the, and uh, Tim's book brought to mind a, a favorite poem of mine, Gray's Elegy in a Country Churchyard, which is all about uh, people whose uh, potential is never realized. There's a nice allusion to some mute, inglorious Milton here may rest. It goes on and on in that vein. Um, and a, a trucker may not seem the equivalent of Milton, presumably is not, but I think when we recognize the creativity that is associated with entrepreneurship in general, um, you see the, the uh, message from Gray's Elegy uh, is really uh, manifest and becomes important uh, where a permit system is used. I w should add one thing though, I, it seems to me clear that in certain cases, the regulatee is gonna vastly prefer a permit system. Suppose you're about to set up a line of uh, production of cars that you know have to meet some criteria for uh, emissions of NOx and so forth. You wanna know before you spend 100 million, 200 million dollars on your production line, uh, that you're not going to have trouble on the technology that you use in that uh, in the car that you produce on this production line. So uh, that is at least an instance where uh, a a permit system is to the advantage of the permittee. I have some other thoughts, but maybe get a chance in the uh, discussion to work them in. I want to begin by saying how happy I am at the number of poets who have been mentioned in this conference. I think <laughs> I, I count four, and I think we should make it a rule that Cato should 
ensure that at least three poets are quoted in every presentation. Um, I only have a brief period, so I want to say I think a lot of these comments are, are so intelligent and deep that they would require a much more thorough expl uh, discussion, which is why I wrote a whole book in response to, um, and actually other books, I noticed some of the references, for instance, uh, Dean Morrison said that the, the enemy is democracy. Um, I don't think that's quite accurate, but to discuss my views on that question, you should consult my last book, The Conscience of the Constitution, that discusses um, the dangers of democracy and so forth. I will add, though, that administrative agencies that typically enforce these permit requirements are the least democratic thing you can imagine. They're not staffed by elected officials. Most of the laws under which you live your life are imposed not by elected officials, but by unelected hired bureaucrats in administrative agencies that cannot even be fired because they're government union members. Um, the basic thesis of my book is that the idea of prior restraint should apply to all permit systems regardless of subject. The Supreme Court said in the 50s that there's basically three rules for when a prior restraint is acceptable. And that is there must be a time limit within which the permit will be granted or denied. There must be clear, unambiguous criteria for the granting or the denial of the permit, not vague standards like good cause. And there should be a right to real judicial review if you're wrongly denied the permit, not some sort of fake review in an administrative hearing where the prosecutor is paying the judge. My argument is basically that those principles should be applied across the board to all kinds of permit and licensing requirements. Uh, with regard to um, uh, licensing, I address this in my 2010 book, Right to Earn a Living, um, and I explain there I agree that I think first, the First Amendment is not, exactly, not always the best route to go that way. The right route is substantive due process. Unfortunately, that doctrine, which is the oldest and most important of all constitutional protections in Western civilization, has been largely undermined by both left and right. Um, fortunately, we at the Goldwater Institute have a solution for these problems. One of them is our Right to Earn a Living Act, which is legislation that would require state courts to impose a higher level of review than rational basis when it comes to legal challenges to restrictions on economic liberty. Because, you know, uh, Dean Morrison is right that when I address the tests that ought to be applied to whether a permit requirement is valid or not, that gets a little bit vague. But the reason for that is because at present, under the rational basis test, it's basically anything goes. If the government wants to impose a restriction on economic liberty, it's basically free to do so at will. The Right to Earn a Living Act, when enacted, would require courts to ensure that restrictions on economic liberty directly protect public safety and are no broader than necessary. Um, when it comes to the FDA, our right to try legislation, which is now law in 32 states, is a first step toward rationalizing the currently irrational process of drug development and approval by the Federal Food and Drug Administration, a process that takes as much as a decade and a billion dollars to approve medicines that could save people's lives. The Right to Earn a Living Act allows people who are terminally ill to, to use medicines that have been approved for basic safety but are not yet fully approved for sale uh, by the FDA. As far as certificate of need laws, those also would be uh, the Right to Earn a Living Act, I think, would resolve that problem. Keep in mind, though, that we're not talking about intrastate certificate of need laws. Those were largely abolished in the 80s. Um, it's, intr it's intrastate. It's within the state. That's the problem. And that can only be addressed by legal reform or by courts taking seriously the protections of the 14th Amendment that prohibit the government from arbitrarily denying people their economic liberty. Um, I think Judge Williams ha has a, a good point that really the, the question is between reactive and proactive or between prior restraint versus punishment afterwards. Uh, 
And it's true that you will encounter a lot of similar problems in punishment afterwards that you would encounter in prior restraint. That's also true in speech, right? Lawyers have had a long debate since the Constitution was written over how much further the First Amendment goes than the old rule against prior restraints. Everybody seems to agree that the old rule against, well, everybody except the Supreme Court seems to agree that the old rule against prior restraints is part of the First Amendment. For prior restraints are never allowed. The Supreme Court says, except when, right? Uh, one thinks of the passage in, in the animal farm when the animals emerge to find that, that no animal shall drink has been changed to no animal shall drink to excess. Uh, no prior restraint to excess is what the Supreme Court now says. But in any case, part of that debate between proactive and reactive is, well, can you really punish a person after they speak? Is that okay under the First Amendment? Amazingly, early Federalists, the Adams administration, said yes, it's okay to punish people after they speak for the words that they uttered. And courts have developed doctrines that allow, in some cases, like libel or threats, but for the most part, protect free speech. I think if the same vigilance were applied when it comes to economic liberty and the other issues that I talk about, we would be in a better state than we are now in. That's why my book doesn't try to draw easy lines and say, here's a, a, a clean solution to this problem, because I do agree that there are cases, I think rare cases, when a prior restraint rule is appropriate. But they have to fall under those three criteria. Specific timelines for the grant and denial, clear criteria for the granting or denial, and judicial review if you're wrongly denied before they can be even considered appropriate. Thank you very much. We look forward to your questions. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Um, do, do, do we have any short discussion here? On the, okay, let's open it up to your questions. Please uh, wait for a microphone to get to you. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation that you may have. Uh, as I'm sending one person on one aisle, I'll send another person on another aisle so that we can get in as many questions as possible. And please ask a question. Don't give a speech. And uh, let's uh, begin with, um, where do I, this gentleman right here. Hi, Michael Enders, Washington, D.C. Uh, I work in the field of mental health and hold a number of licenses to do that in the various local jurisdictions. One of the things that is involved in getting those licenses are a number of prerequisites. And it's been my belief for some time that the prerequisites were, are an expression of the government's inability to devise a test that accurately measured whether or not somebody should be allowed to practice the profession. And I just wanted to comment on that. psychologist licensing should be abolished across the board. Um, psychology is nothing more than talking. As opposed to psychiatry, which includes prescribing medicine, psychology is a talking cure. And it is, in principle, no different than the discussions that uh, go on between a penitent and his priest, between myself and my mother, between myself and my best friend, between, you know, people talk about their problems. And when you look in the statutes for the legal definitions of psychology, that's what you find, is you find these terms very broad, things like helping people with their human problems. 
Does that satisfy the void against vagueness criteria? Holy cow, right? So, and, and if it's, the answer typically comes, well, yes, but you're dealing with depressed people who might kill themselves if you give them bad advice. But the same could also be said of conversations with my mother and with, um, just kidding, just kidding, mom. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, uh, that's true uh, of, of conversations with your priests and so forth. And that's why these laws are riddled with exceptions that say they don't apply to members of the clergy. They don't apply. Lawyers can practice psychology. Did you know this? I'm a licensed attorney, so I can practice psychology. I guarantee you, I have no expertise in psychology. So I think that those kinds of rules should be completely abolished. And I, not only is it that these, these standards reflect the government's inability to come up with precise standards, but that very inability gives an opportunity for rent-seeking by those who already have licenses to prohibit competition against them. And, and that's the real problem, I think. I think in some cases it can be. Yeah. Okay. Again, let me see your hands so that we can send you. Okay, the next one is this gentleman right over here. Go ahead, right here first, then here. Uh, Joel, Ma Joel Mandelman, I'm an attorney in Washington. Coming back to the psychologist, isn't it sufficient to say that you must have at least a master's degree or a PhD? as a prerequisite that doesn't involve a lot of government regulation, but nevertheless protects somebody who's got admitted mental problems that wouldn't be there uh, from being injured. And second, my understanding is in a number of states, psychologists have gotten or are actively trying to get the right to prescribe medicines to patients uh, just the way a psychiatrist would. So doesn't that begin to weaken your sort of the second part of your argument. Well, if the profession is different, then the criteria should be different. I would favor something that says you have to have a master's degree, period, over something that's more vague, like, well, you have to prove that you're skilled and competent or something like that. Um, I guess it's just a question of how much of Camel's nose are you willing to accept under the tent? Uh, and, and you find problems like the case I discuss in the book in which a, um, a, a columnist, a newspaper advice columnist, was prosecuted for practicing psychology without a license. He was a licensed psychologist in his home state, but because his column ran in another state where he didn't have a license, he was prosecuted for this. Um, I think it goes without saying that the licensing of advice columns is not compatible with the First Amendment. The ver America's first advice columnist, of course, was Benjamin Franklin, who never went to college. Although he was called Dr. Franklin, he did not have a doctorate. Uh, and he often made up the questions that he answered in his newspaper. He didn't, I think it would have been inconceivable to the founders that the First Amendment would authorize a licensing requirement in that regard. With regard to medicine, you know, the, the medicine rules are a form of permit requirement for possessing medicine. As a libertarian, I'm fine with all of it being legal. But if there is going to be restriction, it needs to be as unambiguous and as, as uh, fairly enforced as possible. What uh, the, the, in the, the Kentucky doctor ultimately won his case uh, in, a, in a decision by the federal district court. Alan, you had a comment. So, uh, the advice column reminded me when I taught professional ethics at law schools, I used to use Ann Landers. Uh, her advice columns about giving legal advice. Somebody would write, what, can I do this and such and such, and what happens if this? And she would give the advice, and so I would ask my students, uh, is she practicing law without a license, and if so, in what jurisdiction? Uh, <laughs> the other thing I want to say is that there's an interim position on the psychologist, and that is a certificate 
which says if you have a certificate in order to say that you're have a certificate, and that has some objective criteria. You've taken the following courses and so forth. And if you don't have a certificate, you could practice anyway, but it's a sort of an indication of that you're more qualified than I would be, for example. I, I'm embarrassed to say I forgot to, to discuss that there are private market alternatives to government licensing and regulation that are all, almost invariably preferable. Um, when I go to a restaurant, I don't look up their licensing history with the Department of Health. I look them up on Yelp. I ask my friends who went to that restaurant. My friend says, hey, don't go there. I got the stomach flu. Then I don't go there, right? That's what most people do with their life. Uber provides a rating system for their drivers, which is not really provided in any effective way by any taxi regulatory agency except in competition with Uber now. So I think there are alternatives available on the private market. And keep in mind that the Supreme Court in the Playboy Enterprises case looked to the availability of private market alternatives as part of its narrow tailoring analysis, as part of the question of whether there were less restrictive means available. I think the time has come for us to push that point and say if there are private market alternatives to government regulation, then that means this regulation is broader than necessary. Well, Alan, would it make a difference with this psychologist that you've just spoken of if uh, the advice were given free rather than commercially? Well, of course, uh, that didn't make a difference in the unauthorized practice of law rules. It's quite clear that it doesn't matter whether you're giving out free advice, uh, and the same is true uh, in, in medicine, uh, subject, of course, to, the, to your uh, mother's exception for telling you to take some aspirin and go to bed. Uh, so, so if your non-lawyer brother-in-law gives you legal advice, he's guilty of uh, practicing law without a license? Yes. Uh, of course, somebody has to... Notice, notify the authorities out, and they have to decide whether they're going to they're going to come after you. But technically, yes, that's right. I and, see. and this is an important point because I talk in the book. There, this legal doctrine of professional speech that the government can regulate what professionals tell their their clients more directly than it can regulate other kinds of speech. A doctrine that not only has never been discussed by the Supreme Court, never been endorsed by the Supreme Court of the United States, but has never even really been discussed in a single majority opinion in the history of the United States Supreme Court. And yet, lower courts have adopted this doctrine that says that, that a, an, a government official, an elected legislator who has no expertise at all in psychology or whatever the profession might be, is in a better position to tell a doctor what he can tell his patient than I am. I, that, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Well, sir. Well, if, if that's the message I gave, I am gravely sorry, because, of course, the doctrines of, of human liberty that the founders endorsed are doctrines that are always true for all people everywhere, and I would be ashamed of myself if I had said anything, if I said anything that was narrower than that. Uh, Steve wants to follow up. I, on. I just wanted to uh, underscore that. This was uh, spurred in my mind by Tim's reference to Magna Carta. I thought he unduly slighted Magna Carta uh, because it fairly explicitly purports to represent the continuation of ancient liberties. 
which I think, and, and then when you see it under uh, Coke, that, that seems in effect to be something very akin to natural law. So um, I, the, uh, the source of these liberties is complicated. It does well, you mentioned Dr. Uh, Coke and Dr. Bonham's case was one involving the licensure requirements of the city of London with respect to a doctor. I, I, I am a great admirer of Lord Cook. He's, he is uh, the greatest lawyer of all time. What he said about Magna Carta, I think, is not really what Magna Carta says, but I believe there was a decision from the Court of King's Bench in the 1910s that said Lord Cook was such a great lawyer that even his mistakes are the common law. So, <laughs> uh, up here, please. I, I just found out that you wrote the new book um, based Could on. Could you speak up a little bit? Yes, I can. Can you hear me now? Yeah. The question is just about your book. What are some of the good um, either results or outcomes that you found in your research that we can say we can actually practice this? I think it's a good theory, but I wasn't kind of clear in terms of what you discussed with us and how to actually implement that in terms of we understanding just what getting permission is all about from your perspective? Well, the, the thesis of my book is that we typically shouldn't be required to ask permission in the first place. Now, I, I actually found so many positive outcomes as I was putting together the examples that I sort of had a hard time finding negative examples um, because a lot of the time these people take on these cases and win them. The, uh, the, the psychologist who was writing the newspaper column, for example, he ended up winning his case. Now that is because, the, in his case, the Institute for Justice, but other organizations that will represent people for free, were, they were willing to take on that case. We can never really know how many people would have been scared away by a threatening letter from the Kentucky Department of Psychology Licensing. So we don't really know whether the outcomes are all good or bad, and it's impossible to do empirical research of that sort. Um, but no, I, I give a lot of good, of, of positive examples of how in the end so people have taken on this system and won. And of course, I'm in the business of taking on the system and I hope winning. So I'm rah, rah, let's, let's take this problem on. But it is a real problem. The Louisiana florist did lose. They did. The, in Louisiana, you have to have a license to be a florist. And at the time that that case went on, you were graded on the beauty of your floral designs, for example. Well, um, you, you might get a bad lose. floral arrangement. And, you know, we have to protect customers from that. Sounds right. He's not making that up. This gentleman right up here and then this gentleman right here. Yes, I'm an endangered, uh, an endangered species at the FCC and now uh, three times, Your Honor, at the DC Circuit. Uh, I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, and um, Professor, uh, it occurs to me that an imprimatur was required from the Curia, uh, St. Dominic, and the Holy Father. Uh, and if it wasn't obtained, uh, the consequence could have been significant. So I think a little bit of Latin here, in numero veritas, do you agree, Professor, that to draw the line, uh, benefit cost is a way to go if, if regulation is potentially desirable or not, uh, and that too little of it is done in, uh, in the Article II agencies? And Your Honor, uh, regarding uh, seeking uh, forgiveness rather than permission, don't you think the cost of capital is a self-regulating uh, factor? Uh, if the risk of not getting permission up front is, uh, and getting punished later is very high, the cost of capital can self-regulate that for an enterprise or an entrepreneur. Thank you. A good point. I, I, I have a very quick 
You probably have no, more. I don't. I don't. I, I don't see. I, I can see how the cost of capital makes a, uh, a permit system incre increases the ways in which a permit system is preferable. In my example of the automobile manufacturer, uh, but I'm not sure how that it's self-regulating in the sense that that cost of capital is uh, brought to bear on our legislators when they're deciding between different approaches. Yeah, but the system has to be set up to allow that. I'll try to answer the question. I'm not quite sure that I understood the question. Uh, if, if the question is, do our agencies take costs into account in a proper way, uh, the answer is, I think so, but I'm not sure. Uh, and uh, I don't know how I would be able to measure whether they did it properly or not, other than the fact that we, we have judicial review at various times and we have political review. And if you're not sure, how, why is it you're confident that the agency is able to take these into consideration? Able or does or does properly? <laughs> uh, probably, probably willing more than able. Well, I, I don't know. I think some agencies are more willing in some circumstances in some administrations than they are in others. Uh, and some of them are, are instructed to take safety into account, and they may or may not take safety into account in some administrations in some situations and not in others. So, uh, well, the EPA is notorious in well, okay. that regard. <laughs> Sir. Stephen Shore, a question for Mr. Sanderford. Would you have taken on the defense of Adam and Eve after they were expelled from the Garden of Eden for eating the forbidden fruit? <laughs> Well, I'm delighted to have a Milton reference to go with our other... Well, no, Milton was one of the four I already counted. Uh, he's my favorite Christian libertarian, and if none of you have read Paradise Lost, I urge you to do so. It's one of my favorites. Although, as Dr. Johnson said, no man ever wished it longer. Um, but it is, I, I, think the, uh, I think Milton gives the best possible defense of uh, Adam and Eve, especially Adam, who chooses to eat the apple and live in a fallen world rather than live without Eve, which is the most beautiful love poem I've, I've ever read. Well, of course, it's the snake who needs some representation. <laughs> As Twain said, we, we only have one side of that story, oh, right? That's right, because after all, he got a bum rap. Uh, it's the, the sin is not in the tempting. The sin is in succumbing to the temptation. Uh, well, that, it was that, free speech. And that's, a lesson for corrupt, <laughs> and that's a lesson for corruption of political officials as well. It's not in the tempting. It's in the succumbing to it, which many a political operative has done. All the way in the back, we have a hand up. If you could run right back there. Any other hands? Let's see them. Uh, yes, Devin. Uh, I'm uh, George Messenger. I'm a high school senior at the high school in Potomac, Maryland. And uh, there was some discussion of due process, and I'm writing my senior thesis on uh, the state of freedom of speech and the First Amendment in universities. Uh, particularly public universities. And I was wondering if you could comment on um, the state of free speech in public universities and particularly uh, denied due process. Yes, well, I have a section in the book in which I make an analogy between the recently enacted yes means yes law in California and the permission society as a form of permit requirement to, for sex. Um, where you are presumed a rapist unless you can prove afterwards that you got consent from your partner at every stage and that she did not revoke it afterwards. Um, 
which is a, a plain violation of due process, undermines the most basic principle, not just of our criminal law, but of epistemology itself, which is that who asserts the claim must prove it. That's the origin of our principle of innocent until proven guilty. Uh, and the reason for it is not a, a preference um, of just an arbitrary preference of our society. It's, it's written into the laws of logic that it's impossible to disprove something truly. And therefore, it, is, it, it makes no sense to put the burden of proof on the defendant to prove that he did not commit the crime. So I think that is a real problem. With regard to free speech, I, I have to admit, I am astonished by what is going on on these university and college campuses nowadays. I did not see this coming. I, I am amazed by the degree to which it seems that schools are cracking down on unpopular thought. It's a, it's a disgrace in a country that not only prides itself on freedom, but that has long prided itself on training its rising generation to cherish and protect the principles of freedom, right? As Reagan said, we defend freedom, freedom here or it is gone. And if we don't defend it, then we must tell our grandchildren what it was that we found more precious than freedom. Um, so it is, it's disgraceful that we are facing a situation where, where even the most innocent remark or a ha Halloween costume can get people in serious trouble with universities that are, after all, government entities and have a constitutional obligation to accord due process rights to students before punishing them. Um, I escaped that by going to a college that receives no government funding, Hillsdale College, um, Though they also have disciplinary restrictions on free speech, but um, in any event, I think it's a, a shame, and I don't talk about it at, at that part at great length in the book. Though. Well, in, even in private schools, <clears throat> there are contractual remedies that are often right. invoked by such organizations as FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, and you can go to my website at Cato and find two long speeches on the subject of free speech in academia. Tim is absolutely right. What is going on uh, today is very different from back in the 60s when the students were clamoring for free speech, as in Berkeley, California. Today, it's the students who are clamoring for safety and for uh, it's the cry bullies, uh, as it is, who want to, to be sheltered from anything that makes them uncomfortable. And a lot of a lot of people are familiar with Fire's excellent work, but uh, let me put in a word for another favorite organization, the Student Press Law Center, which I've been a great fan of for for many years. Yeah. Now, where did the, the, oh Devin? Next question. Uh, any Hi, more Devin. hands up? Devin Watkins of the Cato Institute. Uh, I had a question about the extent of government powers without crossing that line of asking for permission. So the first would be a registration requirement, whether you don't ask permission, but you're required to inform the government before you do it. And the second would be some type of requirement to post a bond so that afterwards, if we find you violated the rules, we have some way of punishing someone that has no money. Right. Um, and the last would be in a case where we do switch to a permission permissionless system, say the government writes very vague regulations and then allows you to ask the government whether such and such a thing would violate the law in advance and kind of gives you a safe harbor if they say that it would. Would you perhaps be going into many of the same problems in such a system like that? I'll let the other panelists go first if they like. Well, the, <laughs> the burden of my remarks was that you would. Yes. <laughs> that that uh, all that, uh, I mean, you're, you're right, I think, to identify a continuum in terms of degree of advance uh, review, uh, but most of the problems that Tim identifies and associates with the permit system uh, apply across the board. 
so I think in, in partial response is that the question is what is the substantive standard under which you can either be granted or denied a permit or be punished or have some uh, something happen to you afterwards. And it's the difficulty in designing words that will express good cause. Doesn't, Tim doesn't like good cause, uh, uh, but the problem is trying to find something else in various circumstances that will work in the context of the particular regulation. Good cause means something quite different for firearms than it does for whether something can be discharged. Yeah, I think, um, so in my perfect world, I wave my wand and I get rid of the permission society. There still are something very similar to permit requirements, and that is primarily done by insurance companies. So if I'm going to start a business, I need to get insurance in case the place burns down. The insurance company comes to me and says, well, okay, we'll insure you, but you have to, you have to show us that you've built your house out of fireproof or your business out of fireproof materials or something like that. And I think, in fact, historically, government often looks to the criteria that were first invented by insurance companies in order to adopt its own criteria that it then imposes in the form of building permit requirements and things. So I, that would be my solution. To that. I think there are market alternatives, and the benefit to them is that they're more flexible. Uh, it, you know, the, take zoning, for example. Zoning was supposed to be, 100 years ago when zoning was invented, zoning was going to be rational land use planning. We won't have the pig in the parlor, as Justice Sutherland said. We're going to have the businesses over here and the residences over there. Now, first of all, it was immediately captured by, through rent-seeking by, uh, by people who wanted to exclude racial minorities from white neighborhoods, and it was used to, to block that from happening, which, of course, still goes on just subtly. Um, and the uh, the if you look at the look at the the zoning map of Manhattan today, it is every bit as crazy quilt as it ever was a century ago. Except there is this difference that the all the exemptions and grandfathering in and excuses and and all these different rules those have all been triggered by political decision making instead of by the economic decision making of the people who want to use the property and consumers and the supply and demand. Instead, it's based on whether you know somebody at City Hall, whether you can persuade City Hall to give you an exemption, and that sort of thing. And, of course, the use of insurance companies, especially in a competitive insurance market, allows for cost-benefit analysis to be brought in in a rational way that, unfortunately, agencies uh, are less able. This is why Roger has two people on that side and one person on this side, because he can't resist uh, helping me. <laughs> well, and he's absolutely right. Absolutely. Well, not that you need it. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, when you do, I'll come to the rescue. We've got time for one more question. Uh, all the way in the back, uh, Bonner. Bonner Cohen, National Center for Public Policy Research. Mr. Sandifer. Uh, uh, could you hold the microphone closer to you? Uh, how's that? Yeah, that's good. Okay. Uh, Bonner Cohen, National Center for Public Policy Research. Mr. Sandifer, uh, Dean Morrison uh, referenced your use of the term ruling class, but he seemed unclear as to what you meant by it. So could you tell us briefly what you meant by the ruling class? Were you referring to something similar to what Angelo Codavilla wrote about in, a, in his essay a few years ago? Could you clear that up for us? Thank you. Uh, well, I guess it sort of has some parallels, but the um, no, what I mean is that when you have a system, as I said, when you have a permission system, you have to look up at superiors and ask for their permission to do your thing. Well, those superiors, that what happens is over time, those that gets... Uh, coalesces into a permanent overclass 
and the people who have to ask permission coalesce into a permanent underclass. A great example, this is the moving case, right? The, Kentucky wouldn't allow new competition in the moving industry, but existing industry, existing moving companies could sell or give their licenses to others. So typically, they gave or sold them to friends and family members. And so gradually what you see happening is there's a class of people who have licenses and a class of people who don't, and the more the system turns into a permission requirement, the more separated and rigid those class distinctions become. And so I think what happens is over time, those tend to polarize around racial distinctions, around distinctions based on socioeconomic status from the beginning point. And if this malady continues to worsen, what you end up with is something like the old regime of France, uh, that's for you, Jason, uh, or for uh, the, the uh, 18th century England, where you it, it rigidly coalesces into guilds who have have insider status and those of us who don't. And the, one of the great revolutions of the 18th century was to break that system down. If you, Jefferson talks in Summer Review of the Rights of British America, the, the pamphlet that got him the job writing the Declaration of Independence, he talks about economic liberty. He says, it's illegal for the colonists to make things out of iron. At that time, the colonists were required to to send the iron to Britain to be made into consumer goods and then shipped back to uh, the colonies for use. Why? He says to protect not men but machines in the island of Great Britain. What he means is this class of people who have political protection so that they don't have to compete fairly. And the great idea of our economic system is that we shouldn't have those classes. It should be up to personal merit and hard work. And there's another old world that old word that captures this um, regime of the ruling class that extends well beyond the um, the government officials, and it's called syndicalism. Yeah, right. Remember that one? I always oh. think of the star-bellied sneeches from oh. Dr. Seuss. <laughs> they have stars on their bellies, and we don't, and that system gets worse and worse over time. Hmm. Um, again, the Permission Society is the book that we're here to note, and uh, please... Uh, Avail yourself of the opportunity to pick up a copy outside. Tim will be glad to sign it for you, as, long as, as well as his other books. Uh, also, I want to again thank the Federalist Society for their uh, co-sponsorship of this program. I want to thank C-SPAN and its audience for joining us in this program. And let's now head up to the George M. Yeager Conference Center for lunch. And before we do, give a warm round of applause for our guests.